Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. In this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing David Chalmers. David is a renowned philosopher and cognitive scientist, most famous for formulating the hard problem of consciousness. He is a professor of philosophy and neuroscience at New York University, as well as co-director of NYU's Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. I hope you enjoy the episode. David, not too long ago, there was a really interesting Twitter conversation that occurred when OpenAI's chief scientist posted on Twitter saying, it may be that today's neural networks are slightly conscious. And this came at a pretty funny time because you've said before that you're open to the idea that present AI systems might be conscious. And I was hoping you could take a second to maybe explain your openness to that idea. Yeah, well, we don't understand consciousness at the moment. So we're not in a position to be certain whether any system is conscious, except perhaps for ourselves. I know for certain that I'm conscious and I'm pretty sure that you and other humans are conscious. Beyond that, to some degree, it's speculation in the absence of a, uh, of a theory of consciousness. Some people think that there's an element of consciousness in every system. Uh, even an elementary particle has some degree of consciousness. Um, if an elementary particle has some degree of consciousness, then presumably there's no reason why neural networks, artificial neural networks, can't have some degree of consciousness as well. But then we wouldn't need to go all the way to large language models, even uh, a simple three-layer neural network might be conscious. If you reject the view that every system is, uh, is conscious, then presumably the alternative is that consciousness requires at least some degree of complexity, perhaps some specific kind of complexity to give you, uh, to give you consciousness. And then you know, maybe a three-layer feed-forward neural network wouldn't have the right kind of complexity. But then you start to look at these uh, large language models with hundreds of billions of parameters, and it starts to look as if there's, um, there's room for an awful lot of complexity there. And certainly, you know, for the beginnings of what looks like forms of intelligence, so it becomes natural to at least speculate there could be some kind of consciousness there. I would actually, I mean, a lot of people think that even consciousness is not just a domain of humans. If we're thinking about human level consciousness, then a lot of people would resist this. But consciousness, most people think consciousness is present in probably in all other mammals, in birds, most likely in fish. And, you know, the, there's an argument about whether consciousness is present in an insect. Uh, but you think, if, if you start to think a fly can be conscious, then some people think even like a nematode worm with, uh, with uh, C. elegans with only 300 neurons. If you start to think that can be conscious, then why not a large language model with uh, hundreds of billions of parameters and exhibiting intelligence? I, I certainly wouldn't say they have anything like the kind of consciousness that humans have, but, who's to, you know, but if, uh, if worms and insects and fish have some simple form of consciousness, yeah, why not a large language model? There's a lot to pick up on in that answer, and where I'll start, and I'll maybe continue leaving the definition of consciousness a little bit vague for now, and we can get into that after this little bit. The first thing that I think is interesting there, there seem to be a few ways in which we could attack this problem of that openness to machines being conscious. And one of them was what you talked about with regards to some degree of complexity. It's known that the human brain is something that's just extremely, extremely complex. And I know there are different ways that people have thought about the question of machine consciousness. You can imagine things like brain uploading. I believe you have talked about the idea that maybe if I were to start to replace individual neurons or parts of my brain with something different, then you might think that the brain or that I continue to have consciousness along the way. And it becomes a little bit mm -hmm. hard to figure out okay, maybe there's a vanishing point where I'm no longer conscious or something like that. That just seems a bit non-intuitive. Maybe starting from the complexity angle here, 
I get the sense that when we're imagining, okay, is a quote-unquote artificially intelligent system actually conscious, a lot of people might not be open to the idea that, say, a very simple two-layer neural network that I coded up in Keras has much, if any, consciousness at all. And this is not considering the whole panpsychism, everything is conscious idea just yet. And so it seems like the more complexity we have, the closer we get to something people would consider consider consciousness. And again, you know, we're leaving the definition a little bit vague here. But I'm curious how you think about the role of complexity in being conducive to consciousness. Do you think that there is a necessary level of complexity for a system to have consciousness at all? Do you think there is kind of a litmus point there? Well, I think if you're a panpsychist who thinks that every system is conscious, then you're going to say no complexity is not required for consciousness because even maximally simple systems can be conscious. But most people are not panpsychists. It's a very, you know, it's a somewhat marginal view, even though I have sometimes have sympathy for it. If you're not a panpsychist, then almost by definition, you're going to say complexity is at least some degree of complexity is at least necessary for consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean that some degree of complexity is necessary and sufficient for consciousness. It may well, you know, it may be, it has to be the right kind of complexity. I mean, even complexity can be measured in many different ways. And it may well be that the kind of complexity required for consciousness is something very specific. You know, maybe there are only certain algorithms, for example, that give you consciousness and complexity is not the best way to think about what's, um, about what's sufficient. But it would at least be uh, it would at least be necessary. I guess I think some people would deny. I mean, an extreme view will deny that any AI system could be conscious. So an extreme view would deny that even a simulation of the human brain would be conscious. And there are plenty of philosophers and others who think that. My own view is that a simulation of the human brain would very likely be conscious. Um, you know, the alternative here is to say that. Maybe you need something like biology to be conscious. I find that implausible. I think, you know, in principle, we could imagine replacing all the neurons in the human brain with silicon chips. If they function the right way, my view, if, if it's conscious at the start, it'll be conscious at the end. If that's right, then we at least have that biology is not required for consciousness. And there are at least some AI systems that can be uh, that could be conscious. Furthermore, it starts to look plausible. There are some algorithms, you know, maybe an algorithm specifying the structure of the human brain. There are some algorithms such that implementing, realizing that algorithm is going to be a sufficient condition for consciousness. Okay, so that's good. So now then we've got, so we've at least got an extreme case, like a brain simulation, uh, which is conscious. And if we're not a panpsychist, we have another extreme case, um, you know, a single particle which is not conscious. Now the question just is, uh, where in between? What does it take to get consciousness? And here there's just a million different theories. Uh, there's the integrated information theory that says actually even fairly simple information structures are conscious. Not a single unit, it turns out, but even if you have two units interacting with each other on integrated information theory, you'll get some degree of consciousness. Another theory says you need something like a global workspace in the uh, in the brain, but the conditions, the algorithmic conditions for that are very ill-specified. Then there are views that say you need something like higher order reflection, representations of representations, say, in the human brain. That starts to be a very demanding view of consciousness. It would require a great deal of complexity. So there's no consensus on these things, uh, on these things right now. But you know, the big one of the big debates is whether consciousness, by which we mean subjective experience, just feeling like something from the inside, um, is very widespread and present only in simple systems or is actually relatively rare and only present in extremely complex systems. Right. I feel like there's many different ways to land here. And my understanding is you take a little bit of a Bayesian approach. You seem to be open to multiple different theories along that spectrum. I was going to ask you actually about 
your opinion on integrated information theory since you brought it up. Mm -hmm. There's a blog post from Scott Aronson a while back called Why I'm Not an Integrated Information Theorist. And he looks at, I believe this matrix program or something of that sort, where if you calculate the integrated information content of that program, you can more or less scale it up without bound. And you have this system that is conscious based off of something like the size of the matrix. I don't quite have all of the details off the top of my head, but that seems like something very non-intuitive to people. And I believe he took this to say, okay, there's a problem with this measure if we're to use it as a measure of something like consciousness. I'm curious if you agree with that objection and whether you think that there are any other perhaps more promising ways to measure something like consciousness than an integrated information theory. Yeah, I'm sympathetic with the general approach of integrated information theory, although not so much with the specific details. Back in my book in 1996, The Conscious Mind, I argued that yeah, for quite deep links between consciousness and information, that consciousness may be some kind of informational properties, or at least there could be informational conditions for consciousness. And well, yeah, Giulio Tononi, who developed integrated information theory, has basically given that idea some mathematical detail by actually specifying some mathematical measures, some network properties. Basically, he has this measure phi uh, of integrated information, such a, and he thinks that when your phi is greater than zero, then you have some degree of consciousness. And then he goes on to actually give some further conditions for specific states of consciousness. Now, Scott Aronson pointed out that even some really remarkably simple systems can have quite high phi. So like a matrix multiplying system, it turns out, has a pretty high phi. If you get two large enough matrices, I don't know, a million by a million, then just multiply, if you multiply these two matrices by each other, you'll get a very high degree of phi, a very high degree of consciousness. And yes, Scott said, uh, this is very implausible. I mean, maybe panpsychists could tell you that matrix multiplication matrices have some tiny bit of consciousness, but the idea that they could be as conscious, for example, as a human brain, just by multiplying two matrices, his thought was that was implausible. And I'm inclined to agree. That seems pretty implausible to me. Around this point though, I'm inclined to think this has more to do with the specifics of Tononi's integrated information theory and the specific formula. Tononi bases it, I think, in five properties of consciousness, which include that consciousness is integrated and differentiated and unified and so on. And then he turns all these into math and gives a mathematical condition. But I think it's quite arguable that he misses out some things which are, uh, which are quite important about consciousness like the consciousness represents the world or that there's some consciousness of oneself. So it could well be that a successor version of integrated information theory could build in further conditions um, so that yeah, matrix multipliers won't come out to be conscious. And we could still have a theory in the same class, but that doesn't have the same implausible prediction. What I like about integrated information theory is it's at least precise enough to make fairly specific predictions about consciousness. Very few other theories of consciousness do that. The global workspace theory is extremely vague. For example, the higher order thought theory, what does it take to be a higher order thought? So I like the mathematical precision of IIT, but at the same time, yeah, that precision is also what makes it open to vulnerable to some fairly clear potential counterexamples. So I'd, I'd say right now, I'd see it as an instance of what a mathematically th precise theory of consciousness could look like rather than a theory, rather than the theory that we should take seriously. I mean, neuroscientists also object that there's very little empirical evidence for this. The arguments for this measure phi and so on are largely philosophical and phenomenological and extremely speculative. And I think that's right too, but still it's nice to have it as an instance of a mathematically precise theory of consciousness, one that you might in principle be able to apply to AI systems, for example. It's an interesting case study one thing that strikes me about it that I perhaps would call a little bit non-intuitive, I'm not sure if that's the right word here. There definitely do seem to be aspects of phenomenological consciousness now that we've kind of gotten to the definition here. My experience of the world around me, just having this subjective experience, seeing things like red and all of that, 
the integrated information theory take on this is very much, as you said, mathematical, it's precise. And when reflecting on my own subjective experience, perhaps, it does seem like there are a lot of facets there that are maybe tough to precisely describe in a quantitative fashion. I'm curious whether you think the project of creating a very rigorously quantitative theory of consciousness, whether that's something that will have the kind of descriptive power we'd want it to in terms of explaining, measuring features of phenomenological consciousness and whether that's something that, whether that very rigorous mathematical formulation is something that ought to be pursued or perhaps something that involves mathematical measurement, but is perhaps a little bit less rigorous. I think it's at least worth trying to develop rigorous mathematical theories of consciousness. And that's why I like IIT. It's at least the first attempt here. I hope that we'll end up with a number of candidate mathematical theories of consciousness that we can compare and contrast. I mean, I think eventually we'd like to have a theory that gives us a complete account. In principle, we want to have a theory that we could, such that we could look at any physical system and say, according to this theory, um, here is the exact state of consciousness we would expect to be present in that system. So ideally, you know, some kind of mapping from physical states to states of consciousness. And probably that theory would be best specified in mathematical terms, measuring it's a mathematical structure of a physical system to a mathematical structure for consciousness. I mean, there are questions about whether you can fully specify a state of consciousness in mathematical terms. You know, arguably, perhaps you can specify the structure of a state of, take colors. You know, there's a certain quality to color space has a certain three-dimensional structure, which we can model in psychophysics mathematically. Arguably, that mathematical structure doesn't quite fully capture the subjective experience of seeing red or seeing green. They have a kind of a special qualitative character as well. But I mean, a mathematical model could at least capture the structural characteristics of conscious states, if not the full qualitative characteristic, full qualitative character, which would be something. And then, yeah, so mapping from physical states to that mathematical structure. I mean, there would still be all kinds of questions. Yeah. What about the qualitative character? There's also, you know, the basic explanatory problem, the hard problem of consciousness, which is why is it that this physical system gives you consciousness in the first place? As I'm understanding this mathematical approach, we're just taking it as a brute postulate that, you know, when you've got a physical system of a certain kind, you get consciousness of a certain kind, and we give maybe a mathematical principle that models that, but there's always gonna be the question, yo, why does that happen? Couldn't all this processing go on without any subjective experience? That's the thought experiment of the philosophical zombie who does everything we do without consciousness. And I take it these mathematical models that I'm imagining don't solve that problem as they are. They just take it as a basic postulate that you know certain physical systems give you certain kinds of conscious states. But I think you know at least for for the medium-term ambitions of building a science of consciousness, even to get that far to have a good mathematical principle that connects physical states to, uh, to consciousness, that would, that would be a major advance, even if it doesn't solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. I think that gap there is really interesting. And it's good that you brought out the hard problem and that explanation here. One thing that I always think about a little bit with regard to these types of theories is, yes, say we did have a really nice mathematical theory of when a system is conscious, perhaps how, how conscious it is, we give it some number, that still doesn't seem to solve as you've kind of pointed out, okay, is a system really having subjective experience? I guess as in you know Nagel's, what is it like to be a bat? If I'm looking at a neural network, I don't have this much epistemic access to what it is actually experiencing. I don't have its internal mental states. And so, even if we did have something like a better version of integrated information theory, something that gives us a nice, neat packaged way to say, hey, this thing is conscious, this thing is more conscious than this other thing, it still seems like there's an epistemic barrier there. I can't know for sure. And I'm curious if you think that this, this chasm of 
just not being able to access those internal mental states and not really being able to know for sure, hey, this AI system wasn't just maybe optimized to convince me that it's conscious as opposed to being actually conscious, whether that's something that could ever be crossed. And if so, what that would actually look like. Yeah, well, there is a basic epistemological problem for consciousness, which, you know, as I said a while ago, I can be certain that I'm conscious, but do I kind of really know about anyone else's state of consciousness? There's no direct way. Consciousness is private and subjective. There's no direct way for me to measure and access your subjective experiences, let alone those in a, another animal, a bat, an insect, an AI system, and so on. But um, one thing we do with other humans is that we basically rely on verbal rapport. If someone says that they're conscious, we take that as a reason to think they're conscious. They tell, if you tell me, yeah, I'm having a conscious experience of a red square now, then I take your word for it, unless there's some reason not to. Um, so that at least enables us to get the science of consciousness in humans off the ground, if we accept this principle. That gives us some data for a theory of consciousness. It's an interesting question how you then extend it beyond humans, for example, to animals who can't give you verbal reports. Maybe we can find other measures, behavioral measures, or maybe what we can do is just build the best theory of consciousness we can for humans under this principle and then try and extend it to animals. Find the best theory, the simplest theory that predicts all the conscious states that I find in my own case based on my brain and maybe in other, in other humans, get the simplest, most powerful theory of that form and then extend it to other animals um, and to AI systems and see what it then predicts about about consciousness. I mean, it would still be various epistemological gaps, even in the case of the human data, can we be sure? And how sure can we be that the extension, the generalization to uh, non-human animals is, uh, is something we can count on? But I mean, I think it would at least, be a, uh, at least be a start. It would get messy if it turns out there are three or four different theories, all of which look consistent with the human data that extend to animals and AI systems in different ways then we'd have to find some further basis for choosing between those, which should, be, uh, which should be difficult. If we at least got to the point of having some rigorous theory that at least fits the human data that we do have, uh, then I'd be, I think, well, that would, that would already be a serious achievement. And then we could look to extending it further. And I guess absent that theory, as you said right now, at least in the case of humans, we do tend to rely on things like verbal reports. And you could be very skeptical and just imagine that everyone around you is a zombie. But let's say we're maybe not that person. I suppose you could imagine thinking about the fact that the reason I think we might rely on these verbal reports is that for other humans, we do bear this similarity of physical, functional, architectural characteristics. Our brains mm -hmm. are of similar complexity. Other humans have different or similar behaviors to us. And so mm -hmm. in that respect, if I take as an axiom that I know I am conscious, then I can project that onto other people. I'm curious if we were to develop a very complicated AI system. And, you know, this is just imagining far into the future where we were able to start to mimic some of these physical functional characteristics. You could call this a brain scale AI system or something of the sort. And it were capable of giving us these verbal reports. Would you, would you be comfortable with the idea of attributing something close to or like human level consciousness to that system? Potentially, although it does really depend how you get there. I mean, actually, we do have AI systems which are perfectly capable of making what looks like reports of consciousness. If you run a language model like GPT-3, um, it's got very good at imitating human speech. Mm -hmm. So if you ask it questions about its conscious states, it will give you an answer, like it will give you an answer to, to everything. So you might say, okay, there's some kind of report of a conscious state here, but I take it we don't take this to be terribly convincing evidence because in this case, GBT3 has just been trained to imitate human speech as well as possible. And maybe you could be imitating the speech without imitating the internal basis. Likewise, we might design a theory of a system to just replicate the things we say about consciousness. Um, you know, there's a cartoon somewhere of the AI system that's reading a book called Talk Like a Human 
because it needs to pass the, pass the Turing test. So it just it just uh, imitates the things we say. Then I don't know if we would uh, find that convincing evidence of consciousness. But if we had an integrated AI system that was more organically trained to do many many different things, and then fr- as, to use language as well as to to reason and perceive and so on, and then we find that from that organically emerged reports of consciousness. If it said yeah. But yeah, I'm not just, I'm consciously perceiving colors and space now, and I'm having subjective experience. And yeah, I can't explain this. Why does it feel like something to be me? Then I think at that point, I would begin to find that fairly impressive evidence that the AI system was conscious. It wouldn't be proof, but I think it's uh, be fairly impressive evidence. The philosopher Susan Schneider has argued for an artificial consciousness test where we have to ask the machine many probing questions about its own consciousness. If it answers them well enough, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's some kind of evidence. That's an interesting point. It definitely does seem like there's a kind of path dependence there. And when speaking about verbal reports, I do feel we've been talking about language models a lot recently and the recent discourse over AI systems and their complexity and potential consciousness which makes sense given the incredible results we've seen from systems like GPT-3 and all of that. And to me, it does seem a little bit implausible that the system that has been trained on all the internet and as a result can maybe give me these written reports of its own consciousness is actually conscious. That seems like something I'm a little bit skeptical about. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what this looks like for a system that maybe isn't using language. So I I only recently discovered that in vision, for example, egocentric models is a thing. You know, you have a vision mm-hmm. system that can view things from the first person perspective, perhaps make decisions off of that. I'm curious how you would start to think about the problem of potential consciousness in a system like that. That's just viewing the world, making decisions, maybe not communicating with me in the same way a language model might. Yeah, well, I mean, there's different kinds of models here. Do you have in mind, say, a system for object recognition, which is, uh, which is you know, looking at an image and trying to classify it, or one which is using this actually in locomotion, like in getting around and making performing actions, although yeah. not necessarily talking about them. Yeah, let's pick a more complex one. So as opposed to one that's just identifying objects, maybe one that has these capabilities, mm-hmm. perhaps something like what would go in a self-driving car, you know, one that's able to observe the environment around it, it can yeah. classify, it can then make decisions based off of what it sees. I don't rule out that systems like this uh, could have some form of, of consciousness. They're processing a lot of information, say in a perceptual state, they're using that to guide action. One question is whether they have the kind of global workspace that makes information available for action of a whole bunch of different kinds. Um, I know that people have thought about models in neural networks that have that form. I don't know how successful that's been so far. Another question, though, is whether you need higher order models, whether you need like models of your own models for, for consciousness. Many people think that's kind of uh, crucial. So that if we had the system was able not just to process the information, but to reflect on it, to reflect on the fact, yeah, I'm in this state now, and this is what it's like. If they had a model of their own perceptual states, that, then that would be all the more convincing. Once again, we come up against the fact that we don't have the final theory of consciousness. We don't know whether consciousness just requires very simple processing, which would be present in a simple neural network, or this very complex processing involving global workspaces and self-models and uh, and higher-order thought. and uh, and more, but I certainly don't rule it out. And I do think that moving from pure language models to systems that at least have a, a visual or a perceptual component is, I think, progress when it comes to consciousness, because the core of consciousness, of our consciousness at least, seems to be perceptual. I mean, maybe we have consciousness of language and of thought that goes beyond perception, but the core of it is perception. So even you know, looking at these these transformer systems that deal with images, like you know, Dolly and its uh, and its successes. That's already, you know, interesting in this respect. If someone manages to come up with a uh, a transformer-like system that combines all this with like image recognition and classification and uses it in action and uses it in language, then I'd start to say, ah, it's starting to look like we have a lot of the uh, 
a lot of the uh, the components that seem to be at the ground yeah. of consciousness. Yeah, on that front, there was, you may have seen this already, there was a very interesting blog post from OpenAI that came out around the time I think Clip was released called Multimodal Neurons and Artificial Networks, right? Where they found these internal neurons in Clip that would respond to specific concepts, right? It would respond to the text Spider-Man. It would respond to the image of Spider-Man. It would perhaps respond to an image of the word Spider-Man being written down. Mm -hmm. And when you start thinking about that, it's like, okay, even if I'm not open to the idea of this system being conscious, it's really interesting that it is capable of responding to concepts in various formats in the way that perhaps I or you am. And when you start to think about that, you, at least I become a little bit more open to the idea of some kind of internal state there, even if I'm not sure that corresponds to subjective experience, there's at least something fairly complex and, and deep going on in that system. One question I have picking up on what you were just saying about the idea of models kind of being narrow and wide and that perhaps having some weight on whether they're conscious or not. If we just take the really strict definition of phenomenological consciousness, that I have these subjective experiences, then it seems to me that it's maybe not entirely necessary that I have an AI system that is quote unquote generally capable. I could have a narrow AI system like AlphaGo when that plays Go, and these states could perhaps correspond to subjective experiences. And even if I take it to be possible or likely that the more broadly capable the system is, the more likely it is to be conscious, I could still see an argument that a narrow system might be conscious too. And I'm curious if you find that plausible if we're operating on the side of being slightly liberal about attributing consciousness to things about, or whether there's maybe something off to you about that picture. Yeah, I think it's quite possible, especially if one's on the liberal side where all kinds of information processing gives you consciousness. I mean, probably a specialized system. I mean, a lot of human consciousness is, is specialized, you know, vision, I don't know, vision is fairly general, but, uh, you know, smell and taste are pretty specialized, but we're still, we're still conscious. And, um, an awful lot of our sensory processing. So you can imagine a being that just had was specialized for one of those things. Could they be conscious? Well, they probably wouldn't be conscious like us um, because we're conscious in all these different modalities and we have some general consciousness that floats on top of it. But, you know, maybe um, who's to say that, say, you know, some insects, some frogs, whatever, have kind of very specialized forms of consciousness as well. And I, yeah, I think if one's liberal about consciousness, then I'd be inclined to to at least yeah regard it as a serious open possibility that specialized ai systems even like uh yeah AlphaGo and the like could have some degree of consciousness i mean if a single particle can be conscious why not a complex neural network i just be careful to make the inference that their consciousness would be anything like ours our uh, our own intelligence does seem to be does seem to be general and that probably structures the kind of of consciousness we have but these systems could have some distinctive kind of their own. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess one thing that I'm thinking about now that I want to maybe spend a little bit of time diving into before we go on to some general thoughts on the hard problem of consciousness and various approaches to it is that when we've been talking about AI systems and things like that so far, I always find it interesting the ways in which we actually reason about consciousness and make inferences there. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this meta question of how we actually reason about consciousness, whether it's our own consciousness, the consciousness of other things like AI systems, and what sort of makes sense there. My intuitions about this kind of come from the metaphysics side. So this philosopher Jacobi, who predates a lot of German idealists, was once writing a polemic about how he thought metaphysics needed to be done in one of two extreme ways, right? One is purely by demonstration, one is entirely against demonstration. And he was arguing against Moses Mendelssohn, who was like, okay, I will use demonstration, this principle of sufficient reason to make inferences, but then when that contradicts intuition, I go along with my intuition. And Jacobi really didn't like that. He thought you had to be extreme in one way or another. 
And this doesn't map exactly onto reasoning about consciousness, I don't think. For example, when I think about reasoning about my own consciousness, I do feel that there is a role for intuition in there, just because if I'm talking about my consciousness itself, then that is evidence that I really can be pretty sure I have epistemic access to, direct access to, unless I'm going to take a very, very skeptical viewpoint on all kinds of knowledge. And I'm curious if you have any general thoughts on this meta question of how we reason about consciousness and how you would maybe defend the way in which philosophers seem to ordinarily reason about consciousness. I don't know if there's any single way that philosophers reason about consciousness, but it is true that most people think that when it comes to consciousness, our primary data are introspective. That, you know, we, the reason we believe in consciousness in the first place is one notices it in one's own case. The reason our primary knowledge of its character comes from introspection. And then we can try and connect that with things in the brain, the brain and behavior and so on that extend our knowledge. But if it wasn't for the introspective knowledge, we wouldn't have much of a basis to go on with. Of course, some people are very skeptical of introspection as a guide to anything about the mind. They think, why think that introspection is just going to be a matter of our self-models and why think it's a guide to the underlying reality. Um, some people who go in that direction are led to this view known as illusionism about consciousness. Maybe our sense of consciousness actually isn't getting at something real. It's just a self-model and a kind of a kind of illusion. Maybe we don't really have any of those special, fancy, subjective experiences that we seem to have. Maybe our brain just produces a model on which we have, it's useful for it to model ourselves as having those experiences and that takes us in. I mean, some people find illusionism you know, somewhat hard to accept or crazy because they say, well, it's a primary datum. It seems to be contradicting this primary datum that we're conscious. But you know, the illusionist can always say, well, it's just your self-model that makes you think this is a primary datum. So there's a long back and forth argument there. I tend to start from the viewpoint that consciousness is a primary datum that we know through introspection and go on from there. But I do respect this, this other line that says, no, you can't trust that epistemology. We need some other more objective epistemology, maybe just study the brain and behavior from the, from the outside and try and study the models of consciousness that the brain produces. That's what I've called the approach that studies the meta problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hard problem of consciousness is why does, uh, how does the brain give you subjective experience? The meta problem is why do we get so puzzled by the hard problem of consciousness? You know, well, just why do we think there's a hard problem of consciousness? And although the hard problem seems to require all this, seems to be very mysterious and require all this complex metaphysics to answer, the meta problem is just a problem about cognitive processing in the brain. You might think has some kind of tractable answer. So I respect the point of view that says, well, let's try and solve that meta problem um, of how, how and why we think these ways about consciousness and see where that takes us. And I think that's at least an alternative epistemological basis for moving towards a theory of consciousness. Coming across it for the first time, illusionism always seems like an absolutely wild point of view. And I think to what you said, just because when we do introspection, it seems very obvious that I have these conscious states, these subjective experiences. I, I do find it interesting that there is openness to it at all, although I'm not surprised that, of course, some people have really gone after this. I'm curious what you think are the strongest points in favor of something like illusionism and whether you feel there are just any really obvious issues with existing defenses of the theory. I think maybe the best point in favor of illusionism is that it may well turn out that we can solve the meta problem of consciousness, that is explain why we make the reports and judgments we do about consciousness without requiring consciousness in the explanation. Just say it turns out there's a purely algorithmic explanation of why it is that we say, I am conscious. Consciousness is mysterious. My consciousness has this structure. Consciousness poses a hard problem. I can imagine zombies and so on. Just say there's an algorithmic explanation of why it is to say that I say and judge 
all those things. And then you might say, well, if you're going to algorithmically explain everything I say and believe about a topic without bringing in the topic itself, without bringing in the phenomenon, why should we really believe in the uh, phenomenon? So if I can algorithmically explain everything I say and believe about consciousness without postulating consciousness, maybe we should take seriously the hypothesis that, uh, you know, consciousness is not there at all. An analogy is just say it turns out you can algorithmically explain why we believe in God, uh, why we make certain judgments about God uh, without actually postulating a God. It's just a purely psychological thing. We have these models of the world. It's psychologically useful for us to believe in a greater force that will protect us and so on. So just to explain all the things we say and believe about God without postulating God, many people would take that to debunk our belief in God um, because you've explained away our belief. So I think it's at least a reason, interesting strategy to uh, try and debunk our beliefs about consciousness that way, explain them away in terms of some self-model that doesn't need to postulate consciousness itself. Of course, the flip side is the uh, strongest argument against illusionism, which is basically... Um, I think the, the basic one is this very flat-footed one, that consciousness is a datum. It's obvious that we're consciousness to deny this is to deny a central datum of human existence. But yeah, again, at least the illusionist can explain why we can try to explain why we would say such a thing. So I find it to be a very serious position. I take illusionism very seriously, even though I do also find it impossible to accept. Maybe coming away from illusionism a little bit and returning to the hard problem in general, why it is that we have this subjective experience. What do you take to be at present, perhaps the most likely approaches or solutions to that hard problem? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. I tend to be most sympathetic to views that say that consciousness is something fundamental. I don't think you can solve the hard problem purely in terms of standard physical processes. Those are standard physical theories, standard neuroscience, standard cognitive science are great for the easy problems. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we say the things we say? And so on. But for the problem of subjective experience, I think they always leave a gap. No matter how, how, how well we explain what we do, what we say, there's always this further question, why is that accompanied by experience? So I think you actually need to take something in the vicinity of consciousness as fundamental. And then there's, that breaks into at least two approaches. On one of them, consciousness lies at the basic level of physical reality, some form of panpsychism, for example, or some form of idealism with consciousness at the bottom level of physics. That's, I think, an interesting viewpoint. I take it seriously, but it does face the combination problem. How is it that those bits of consciousness and physics add up to our consciousness? No one's really solved that. Another approach is the dualistic approach. It says, well, there's physics, which doesn't really involve consciousness. There's consciousness, which is entirely separate. And these are fundamental. These are both fundamental, but they interact with each other. So a non-physical consciousness affects our physical brain and body, and these interact. Um, and that's also got some things going for it. But its biggest problem is the interaction problem. Mm -hmm. How is it that non-physical consciousness can affect physical processes? Doesn't this clash with the autonomy of physics, for example? Um, I think there are some possible approaches to this. I recently wrote something on trying to explore the old idea that consciousness could play a role in quantum mechanics. I actually tried to bring in integrated information theory and some mathematical theories of wave function collapse to see if we could develop a mathematical, mathematically rigorous version of that idea. But it was difficult, and it comes up against problems. But I guess I would say that of the non-reductive theories of consciousness, those approaches, dualist and panpsychist approaches, are the ones I'm most sympathetic with. Of more reductionist approaches, probably actually illusionism is, uh, even though I find it impossible to believe, I find it extremely interesting and a promising approach worth uh, worth developing. So yeah, that's a, that's a space I take seriously. Among those two, just considering the idea of panpsychism, it's a really fascinating and wild view of reality. And you pointed out this combination problem of how do these bottom level instances of consciousness add up to ours? 
I am curious just what the picture of the world looks like to you if we if we take this idea of panpsychism to be true. Like I have my own subjective experience. And perhaps if I'm a really extreme panpsychist, then my individual atoms also have their own subjective experience. And is that something that adds up and collects within my subjective experience? Is it that these atoms have their own internal subjective experience in addition to the conscious states that I have overall? I'm, I'm curious what the more plausible pictures look like to you on, on the panpsychist view. Yeah, so one possibility is that, yeah, this is all grounded in the consciousness of something like elementary particles, quarks or photons or whatever, and that each of them has their degree of consciousness. And, you know, just as the rest of the world is made up out of quarks and photons, our consciousness will be made up out of the quarks, the consciousness of quarks and photons. Then the question is, how on earth does that work? That's the combination problem. How could the combination of I don't know, quadrillions of quarks and photons inside a human brain, how could that add up to my consciousness? Normally, you put together 10 different consciousnesses. You don't get a new consciousness. So how does that work? One alternative is a view that people sometimes call cosmopsychism, that um, instead it's maybe one maybe rather than particles being fundamental, it's something like the wave function of the universe is fundamental. There's one single universal state in physics. And then you might have a single universal consciousness. Hi, listeners. This is Daniel. David and I actually started having some audio problems towards the end of our recording. So that bit you just heard on cosmopsychism is actually the end of our conversation, unfortunately. I hope you enjoyed the part of the episode that we did get to record. And I figured I'd just wrap this up on my own by maybe giving a brief recap and reiterating some of the context that we integrated into the conversation. So as I said in the introduction, David Chalmers is most famous for articulating the hard problem of consciousness, basically giving an account that lets us see in some satisfying way how this subjective experience is what it's like consciousness might arise from processes in the brain. It's really interesting to ponder the different kinds of responses you might have to that question. And I think that one of the most interesting ones to consider are, are the set of metaphysical theories that really try to answer the mind-body problem. So if you're familiar with Descartes, he has this dualist theory of the mind and body being separate from one another. And so there's, there's an aspect of consciousness that really falls outside the realm of the physical, and there are different forms of dualism you can get at here. But one of the things that Chalmers alluded to in our conversation was a particular issue with this dualist view of consciousness. And in a letter to Descartes, the Princess Elizabeth, who was a correspondent of his, actually brings up precisely this issue of causality. So if I have a physical body and I have a mind, a consciousness that exists outside the physical realm, then how is there a causal linkage? between what happens in my mind, what my mind might want to tell my body to do, and then my body actually manifesting those thoughts in the physical world. There are also physicalist theories which try to locate consciousness in the physical world. And that again is resolving this mind-body problem by almost saying something like your consciousness is reducible to physical things going on in your brain, for example. So there are a lot of different ways to come at this. And one thing I wanted to briefly comment on in the conversation here is that these dualist and physicalist theories are, are fundamentally metaphysical. And one thing that Chalmers also alluded to is that you almost have to think about consciousness, or at least he seems to, in terms of postulating it as something like an extra primitive. We need to add this in addition to whatever, whatever primitives we might already have in our metaphysical system that 
might be things that are physical, for example. And you might have questions about the existence of metaphysical primitives themselves. So I just came across a paper by Samuel Elgin that makes the argument that there are, in fact, no metaphysical primitives. And this goes by a reductio. So if you define a primitive in a metaphysical system as something that has no essence, it really can't be explained further. Well, it is in the essence or it is an essential fact of something that is primitive, that it is primitive. So the faculty of being primitive basically belongs to its essence. And you get a reductio here that raises some interesting problems. And so I do think a little bit about how that metaphysical problem lends to the issue of consciousness. Now, towards the end, David was also talking about this thought, cosmopsychism. We previously discussed panpsychism, the possibility that basically everything from atoms to plants has some element of consciousness. And this is also almost postulating consciousness as some primary feature of the world. Just to give a redefinition there, cosmopsychism basically says that the cosmos as a whole, everything displays psychological properties. And our mental states, those of human beings as subjects of experience, are grounded in the, the psychological properties of the cosmos. This comes from this definition comes from an issue of the monist, and that makes sense because cosmopsychism does sound quite a lot like monism. That's just an unfinished series of thoughts I wanted to append onto the end of the conversation. Again, I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation. I think David Chalmers is one of the most interesting thinkers out there. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked this episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing, and I'll see you in the next one.